you'd like to keep those Bibles open, Peter, can I ask you to turn the fans on up here if that's okay? I don't know about you guys, but I'll fall asleep if we don't get some air. Uh, and uh, please keep your Bibles open there at 1 Peter. And if you're wondering, there were some slight different words in that translation. Uh, the one before us is the one I'll be working from, and you'll find an outline you can follow there in uh, your bulletins, uh, place to ask questions, make notes, and if you're under 18, score chocolates. Well, having just returned from a, a mission and holiday in Fiji, I was reminded what it truly means to be a foreigner in a strange country. Sure, I was there with a purpose and with people I loved, but it wasn't my home. Everything around me reinforced this. The weather, the language, the customs, the food, the small kids who would laugh at me and point and shout, Kavalangi, Kavalangi, Kavalangi. If you wonder what it means, it means foreigner. Uh, <laughs> and of course, Border Control, who very diligently stamped my passport and gave me a very limited time visitor's visa. Now, smile all I like, learn the language as I can and customs and eat the food and even get comfortable wearing a pocket sulu and sitting cross-legged on the floor, I wasn't at home and there was no way I should be allowed to forget it. There was a background narrative that was constantly playing and I need to adhere to and there's a quiet fear that, against any plans or any actions or decisions that would keep me in Fiji. I knew it and they knew it too. The Fijian locals weren't unkind about it but there was no doubt that yes, I I was, a, a Kavalangi, a foreigner, a visitor, just passing through. Now, that's really easy to remember when we're in a foreign country, to remember our true identity, that this place is not our home, that we've got a destination, that we're travelling as a foreigner. But it's much harder to remember that here in the northern Illawarra where we live. But we Christians must remember because this is what our passage has just declared for us. This world is not our home. This world is not our home. These bodies are perishable. And living in ignorance of God and our heavenly hope, well, that's not what we're called to, but to, to be awake. And so our passage begins, therefore. And whenever you find the word therefore in the Bible, what question should you ask? Yeah, what's the therefore, therefore? Thank you. Absolutely. What's it doing? And, you know, it's, it's doing something. It's a summary of something, and it's pointing forward to something. And, well, what is it here? On this occasion, it's picking up everything way back to the very first sentence of 1 Peter, there, chapter 1, verse 1. And we examined that in detail last week, didn't we? And we're reminded there of the privileged identity God has chosen to give us, that if you are a Christian, you can say, I am God's elect. An exile in the world. That's who I am. That's our identity, a privileged, wonderful thing. And we've got so much to rejoice about as we considered last week in this. But we also must be alert about our current circumstances. Like a foreigner who doesn't belong for more than just a visit, we were reminded that we must not set our hopes on this life here, on these bodies now. They will perish. All these things, our lifestyle, everything we love will perish, spoil and fade. Instead, therefore, verse 13, therefore, with minds that are alert to the truth of this, that are fully sober, set your hope, not in this world, but on the grace that is to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. 
And so what Peter now supplies for us, therefore, going on, right through to chapter 2, verse 3, is a series of immediate implications that play out in regard to this and how that impacts our lives day to day as Christians while we wait for that blessed day. So for our purposes tonight, I've, I've gathered them together into two groups so that we can consider them. The first is there, verses 14 through 21, our life lived with God. We'll look at that first. And then the second set, verses 22 through to 2, verse 3, our life with one another. That's where we're going. That's what you got there on your outline. So let's kick off there, verses 14 to 21, our life lived with God. Although as we read it, that's way too impersonal. Impersonal, isn't it? Did you notice how intimate this is? Look at it there. Verse 14, as obedient children. Verses 15 and 16, be like him. Verse 17, he's our father. Verses 18 to 20, we're purchased with the precious blood of Christ applied to us. So by verse 21, we are in no doubt that this God whom our faith and hope is in He's not just some random God. No, it's the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has both made us and now placed us into his family as his very own, as his special possession, his precious children. That's who we are. Oh, Christian, don't miss this. Don't overlook this or minimise it or, and don't fall foul of the kind of religious talk about God's mystical, distant unknownness. Because if you're one of God's elect, you know the Lord. You have a deeply personal relationship with your Father in heaven who has revealed himself in the person of his Son and given you his Spirit to indwell you. As declared here in the Scriptures. His word telling us that's exactly what he's done. And, and so our life lived with God, it's not some life with an impersonal who knows what that God is. No, this is a life lived in his family, both now and for all eternity to come. And that's why Peter can tell us here, as he does, to live as obedient children of our Father. That's what he calls to, to live as obedient children to our Father. And of course, that's a contrast, and you see it here, instead of conforming to the evil desires we had when we lived in ignorance, when we were ignorant about the fact that we have a father, when we were ignorant about the fact that we're, we were God's children. Don't live in ignorance when you know the truth. And in fact, that's the way it goes. When a Christian chooses to be ignorant about their true identity, well, then they start doing what everyone else in the world does, conforming themselves to their desires, which is exactly what everyone who is ignorant of God does. And cast adrift from God, human desires are evil. Not evil because they're nasty or unkind. I'm not talking about that kind of evil. I'm talking about the outcome. Evil because those desires will lead everyone inexorably away from God and towards death, ignoring God all along the way, pushing us away from him. And so we come up with a great slogan like, you do you. 
You do you. It sounds like a slogan of great empowerment and freedom. But it's anti-God, isn't it? Straight away. It's anti-God. It's anti-listening to God. It's anti-to-living as one of his obedient children. And in practice, you do you. It's an awfully confusing journey of competing desires that cause no end of hardship. And we know that as we start looking at the mental health statistics and the happiness registers and everything about our nation as we keep embracing this expressive individualism, this you-do-you mentality that says, I can work this out and I should be able to and everyone else to shut up and get out of my way. And we end up in no end of strife and confusion. That's becoming clear and it becomes clear every day. In fact, in a speech that wrestled with this individualistic worldview of opposing advice and ideas and, to, and just tried to deal with it, Taylor Swift, that great philosopher of music. And I mean that. She's, she's got some great things to say. In fact, she attempted to give clarity about this to a stadium full of people. She didn't sing. She gave a speech. Here it is. This is the picture of it. Uh, New York University. Graduates, in May this year, she was the headline speaker and she, well, as she tried to give them advice, by not giving them advice, she wrestled with this problem. This is what she said. Here's part of the speech. I know it can be really overwhelming figuring out who to be and when, who you are now and how to act in order to get where you want to go. Well, I have some good news. It's totally up to you. And I have some terrifying news. Back screen. Back one screen. Back one screen, please. That's it. I also have some terrifying news. It's totally up to you. And then she continued and she comes to the end of the speech and says this. So how do I give advice to this many people about their life choices? I won't. Scary news is, giving some advice, you're on your own now. Cool news is, you're on your own now. You with us so far? I leave you with this. We are led by our gut instincts, our intuition, our desires and our fears, our scars and our dreams. Kind of makes you wonder why they signed up and spend thousands of dollars at a university, doesn't it? If that's all they end up with at the end. But there's a lot of applause. It's just confusing though, isn't it? And she's spot on right when we embrace, well, ignoring God and going with our desires. It's just confusing. For anyone, for anyone who doesn't yet know God as their loving Heavenly Father, this is the best we've got. Conforming to desires, reacting to our scars, living by intuition. It's the best that any human who is ignorant of God can do. It's the best. But a child of God, if you're a child of God, you're an elect exile, you're not ignorant. We're not ignorant. And so we don't need to live in ignorance. And praise God, we know the truth. It's not totally up to us. Oh, it takes the pressure off. Straight away, it's not totally up to us. Praise God for that. And we know to whom we belong. And he's explained for us in great detail across 27 books of the New Testament 
exactly what it looks like to live in this world in relationship with him and one another. We don't have to make it up. It's not totally up to you. Christians, we're not on our own. We're not left to gut instinct and intuition, desires, fears, scars and dreams to kind of vaguely hope we'll get it right and maybe do some good in the world. No. That's not us. And so let's do the opposite to that. So so as Peter goes on here, rather than conforming to the evil desires we had when we were ignorant of God our Father... Rather than that, instead, verse 15. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. One writer calls this uh, the, the lifelong task of desiring the beauty of being holy like God. There's something to desire. There's a beauty to capture of being holy like God. And you can see there, verse 16, the first, that last bit of it there, it's a quote. It's a quote that comes from somewhere, and that's helpful because it tells us what it means. In fact, this, this declaration, be holy because I am holy, comes originally from God's command to the Israelites. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, the third book of the Bible, Exodus, the second one, they come out of Egypt and they're now travelling to the Promised Land. It's a very long journey that's going to take, well, the rest of Exodus, all of Leviticus, into Deuteronomy, Joshua. They make it, right? So a lot of instruction that goes on along the way. And there in Leviticus is this quote. And what's really helpful about that is it demonstrates the practicality of what it's actually talking about, to be holy. And that's really helpful because there's nothing mystical or otherworldly or some kind of nasty comparative, you know, holier-than-thou attitude. No, no. Peter's speaking about something that's very practical, very earthy. And we see that there in Leviticus. So there, as they're travelling out of Egypt and they're coming to the Promised Land, he was instructing them, saying, "'You're Israelites now, you're not Egyptians.'" You're not Egyptians, you've left Egypt, you're Israelites now, so don't behave like the Egyptians anymore. And you're heading to where the Canaanites live, but you're Israelites, you're not Canaanites. So when you get there, don't behave like them. Don't behave like them either. Don't behave like them. Don't behave like them. You are Israelites. Behave according to your identity. And... He then unpacks it. So in chapter 11, we find there that it's all to do with their food and religious practices that would be necessary for them as a nation living there in the ancient world. And then in chapter 19, it shifts over to all the daily behaviours that they're going to need as they interact with one another and with the people around them, with the foreigners and others who are amongst them. And it's all very practical. Yes, the Israelites were supposed to live as... Well, they're going to live as neighbours to those people. They're going to have to interact with them. They're going to have to trade with them. They're going to have to respect them. And this command to be holy was never anything about disrespecting other people. No, respect them. Just don't live and behave like them. Respect them, but don't behave like them. That's what it was a call to. And so too for us as we're dealing with holiness and trying to be holy, for I am holy today as we follow our Heavenly Father. You and I are not about to enter the promised land. We're not on our way to Canaan. And so the things that were there for national Israel don't apply to us. They were fulfilled in Christ. But we've still got to work out how to apply this now. 
And the New Testament makes it very clear how we're supposed to do that. And we need to get practical about this. The same kind of questions apply. What does our society approve of for its citizens? What do, Australian, what do Australians say is Australian and that we should be as Australians? Okay, now do those things line up with what God says it is to be one of his people? We've got to find out, don't we? We need to compare. And we have the information, it's called the New Testament, that lays it out for us so we can compare. And when we find a difference, well, we now know how to be holy. Don't behave the way that God says his children shouldn't behave. It's really quite that simple and it's very, very practical. So we need to read it and then need to work out how to encourage each other to live God's way and not copy, not copy those who live in ignorance of God. Don't copy them because they're living in ignorance, but also don't condemn them. There is never a command to condemn. No, so don't copy and don't condemn. They're the, they're the two edges of this. And in fact, they need help, just as we need help. We need good information, we need good examples so that we can follow such people. We need good information, we need good examples and, and we Christians are no help at all to one another and we are no help at all to those who are currently living in ignorance when we fail to desire holiness and when we slip into condemnation or slip into copying them, just like Israel did. Instead, instead we need to live differently. And so the, the phrase Peter picks up here, verse 17 since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time here as foreigners in reverent fear. What's it look like to be holy, to be different? Live out your time here as foreigners in reverent fear. You got it? We can move on? Not really, right? What on earth does that mean? Foreigners in reverent fear? So should we be quaking in our boots? Can we not enjoy anything whilst we wait Jesus' return? No, not at all. We looked at that last week. We've got so much we can enjoy and understand and celebrate and reckon with. We've got this confidence in our identity. It's been purchased by the blood of Jesus, not by perishable silver or gold, as verses 18 to 20 describe here, but by the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And it's secure. So sure, we're foreigners here, but we have this secure identity because God's already raised his son from the dead. And so your hopes, my hopes in resurrection at his return, well, those hopes are likewise entirely secure. We're much to celebrate and have joy in. And yet there's still this, this command here, live as foreigners with reverent fear. And we need to do this and keep this in mind because we're not there yet. We're not there yet. We're still here as foreigners. We're still here as foreigners in transit. I find this helpful to think about as if I'm travelling through customs at the international airport. Or if you've ever been on a cruise, you pass through customs before you get on that boat. And if you've been there, and if you haven't been, this is what it's like, there's a transition hall a transition hall you've got to pass through where everyone is treated as 
a suspicious foreigner. No one's welcome there. No one wants to be there. But we've all got to pass through there. And it is a sober, serious place of transition. And you can be there for a long time if the queues are big and the staff is short or problems happen. But no one wants to be detained there. And there's warning signs everywhere, wherever you go, on every surface about how to behave and where to look and what to be carrying and what to dispose of and what to say and what not to say. And there's armed guards and body centres and x-ray machines and bag checks and video cameras recording your every move. And the way to get through it is to approach it with reverent fear. (laughs) And if you've ever done it, you now know what it means to have reverent fear. It's like that. Now, personally, I really enjoy watching the families with small children go through the transition hall. Having done it a few times myself, it's chaos. So I just like to watch and laugh at what I now see others having to endure. So it kind of goes like this. The kids are full of ignorant brashness. They have no idea what's going on here. And they're ready to run and shout or play games, or they're actually really tired. They just want to lie down and go to sleep. They're ready to set up camp. And the parents, the parents, well, they're just trying to stay there, do their utmost to stay calm and stay focused. They're approaching it with reverent fear and they're trying to school their kids on how to do this as well. And you can hear them saying, muttering to the kids, muttering to themselves, this place is not our home, kids. This is not our home. So stop mucking around. And don't get comfortable here. Don't lie down and go to sleep here. We have no plans to stay here. This is not our hope. This is not our destination. It's through that gate. We're going to go through there and there and there and there and there. We've got to get to to that gate. And our identity will get us through the gate. Don't worry, I've got your passport. I've got the paperwork. We're going to get through. It's going to be okay. We're going to make it. But let's not make anything harder than it has to be, okay? And they pass with reverent fear. They try and drag others with them. Well, so too us as Christians living here in the northern Illawarra today. We live here, but we don't belong here. Remember? We're elect exiles. This is not our home. We're in transit. We're passing through. And as Christians, we are in transit under the watchful eye of our Heavenly Father, who is an impartial judge He's not a random security guard with a gun who wants to slow you down. He's an impartial judge and he is present with us and he calls us along the way and to live in a way that matches our past or to matches our identity as his children. And he doesn't want us to get stuck on the way. He doesn't want us to get delayed here. He doesn't want us to set our hopes here, to not fall in love with being here because... We're foreigners and this is not our home. And so he says, be holy, for I am holy. Be like your daddy. That's how you're going to make it through. And reading his word together and listening to him and allowing him to instruct us as we gather together in church like this, well, that's precisely how we learn to live holy lives for God whilst passing through, whilst respectfully or simultaneously living in respectful relationship with non-Christian Australians around us who are in love with here and trying to make it heaven. But we're passing through. 
That's why we need to do it alongside each other. And in fact, doing it alongside other Christians is what the next part of our passage is all about. We're not alone. It's not just us and God, me and God. No, it's, well, that's what verses 14 to 21 are all about. But then verses 22 to 2 verse 3, well, it's now focused on our love for one another. How do we do this together? How do we pass through that hall together? What should it look like? That's very clear. Verse 22. Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth, that you have sincere love for each other, and you can tell you do because you're here and you're sitting with each other. We're in church. What do we do now? We'll love one another deeply from the heart. And before laying out some specific do's and don'ts, which he will do from 2 verse 1, there's a bit in the middle here from verses 23 and following that stops and pauses to help us identify who the other people are that we are commanded to love, that we're on transit with. And it's not who we'd naturally expect that we're commanded to love. Did you notice? It's not a command here to love Jesus. That's already true for the Christian. We saw that back in verse 8 last week. That's already true. We don't need to be commanded to do it. But nor is this here a command to love our friends or to love our country or to love our children or our spouses or even to love our enemies. Peter will talk about how we are to behave towards each of those groups and he's going to do that later in the letter. He's going to spend much time and detail on that later in the letter But now he starts here because the priority relationship of love for every single one of the elect was actually one another. The other people that Christ has also spent his blood to save. We are each to have a devoted love toward one another in the church. Toward one another in the church. It's sincere earnest, a heartfelt love, love each other from the heart for other local believers. And why them? Well, I know I'm handsome, so it's pretty easy. It's not easy, is it? So why them? Why each other as the priority for our love? Because those are the ones we're going to spend eternity with. That's why. The ones we're going to spend eternity with. Verse 23. For you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Perishable people, born of perishable human seed, will perish. Whereas the elect are born again of imperishable seed, which is the word of the Lord. And for that reason, the elect are imperishable. God guards them to make sure they get there. And Peter's quoting here, straight out of the Old Testament again, not Leviticus this time, he's quoting now from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 6 and following, where Isaiah declares there that only the word of the Lord stands forever. The nation of Israel won't stand forever. All those laws and rules won't stand forever. But the word of the Lord that promises salvation in his son, it will stand forever. People, on the other hand, well, we are no more permanent or glorious than the flowers in the field or the grass. Here today, 
and gone tomorrow. Flash and bright and beautiful for a little while, but everything does sag and drag and slowly drag us down to the grave, doesn't it? But those who have believed the preached word of God about Jesus and are born again by that enduring word, well, they will endure also. The bodies will still fade, but will endure all the way through to eternity with a resurrection body. So because God's word is permanent, those who are born again by believing that word are also permanent. And that's why it's our priority to earnestly love other believers over and above and before any unbelievers that we know. Because followers of Jesus are the only people we will spend eternity with. And therefore we need to get on with loving each other and get started doing it now. Yeah, that's heartbreaking news, isn't it? And I know as I'm saying this, I'm stomping on an issue that's very tender for all of us. See, we all, we all have unbelieving people in our lives that we love dearly. And it rightly breaks our hearts to think that they might not live forever with us. Those people are in my life too. And Satan would like to, he would like us to use this sadness as a reason to be disappointed with God or to abandon God, be angry with him and he's, say he's not good, that he's not gracious. Yet even in our anxiety for those we love, we've got to resist Satan's urgings to go such a way because we know that the Lord is good. And we know we have tasted that the Lord of good because he chose us. You're here because he chose you. You know he's good because you know you're not good. We're not worthy to be chosen. But he chose us anyway. He chose us anyway. He's already good even if he has not yet opened the eyes of that person you prefer And the not yet in that sentence is the most important bit. For God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. He's going to say that, not in 1 Peter, but in 2 Peter. He's patient. And so in this time of patience, while we're waiting, where the, these people we love are not yet followers of him. Well, that gives us a job to do, doesn't it? And it gives us hope and every reason to hope. I know those who were praying for me for 18 years... Waited 18 years. And praise God, there came a moment when my eyes were opened. Well, so too, for those we know and love, hold on. And use this not yet, this, this not yet opened their eyes as a reason to be more clear, more urgent, more prayerful, more careful, and much more loving towards our unbelieving friends and family. And, and let's be patient and praying and preaching and teaching and sharing with them at every opportunity we get about Jesus. And yeah, they're going to despise you for it. But you know what? They need him or they're not going to be with him forever. 
So let's do that. And yet even, even as we patiently and earnestly and fervently set our love upon those so that they can know Jesus too, we, we must not forget that this prior command here is actually to earnestly love the followers of Jesus from the heart. Earnestly love those we already know we're going to spend eternity with. And that's what Peter's writing to instruct us to do. And so what does that love look like? Well, if love towards the unbeliever looks like sharing and praying for their salvation, love for the believer looks like, well, getting rid of this and craving that instead. Get rid of what doesn't belong in the church and our behaviour and, and crave what does belong. So rid yourselves, he says here, of all malice and deceit and hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind, like newborn babies crave something else, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up into your salvation now that you've tasted the Lord is good. And so here in the church amongst one another, how do we love? Well, we've got to get rid of these destructive, selfish behaviours that are for our own benefit, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. There's no place for such behaviours once we get to our destination. So let's start cleaning them out, clearing them out now. In love for one another, we are to clean out those selfish cravings from amongst us. Clear them out, but don't leave the room empty. No, no, replace it with something else. A different craving, craving pure spiritual milk that we might grow up into healthy, spiritual, mature church body that together grows up into our salvation. Do it just like a newborn infant craves what it needs to grow up into its identity. So should we. We'd worry if a baby didn't crave its milk. We would worry deeply if a, if a baby didn't meet its growth milestones. If it didn't show progress in growth, we would rightly worry. Well, how much more worried should we be for one another in the church? If we find or know of a fellow Christian who's not craving the pure spiritual milk of God's imperishable life-giving word, how much more worried should we be for a Christian who doesn't want to grow up in their salvation, who's pursuing ignorance again? Well, even more so should we be worried for a whole church or a congregation who behaves this way, because that's what Peter's referring to here. We impact one another in this. God reveals his miraculous work in the lives, plural, of his people collectively as we grow in our salvation together, building one another up into the head, which is Christ. And so just as we have already tasted individually that the Lord is good, oh, friends, then let's crave feeding on his word together. You heard what Tim said at the start of our service. We're about to do the most important thing, he said. We opened the Bible and read and heard God's word. Crave that moment. Oh, it's good. Because by it, we will grow in Christ together. So Christians, elect. Kavalangi. Foreigners, just like me. That's what we are. 
We're foreigners. We're just passing through. Don't forget it. It's the underlying, all-encompassing narrative of our lives. We must not forget that we're just passing through. And while we're passing through, we're living with God and we're living with one another as foreigners here in reverent fear. So let's align our hope to Christ's return. Let's help each other to align our hopes to Christ's return. For there and there alone is a sure and certain hope. And let's pray that God would send him soon. Will you pray with me? Oh, Father, thank you that you are our God, that you are so good, that you've made us, you've purchased us with the blood of your Son, you've brought us into your family, you've given us your spirit, you've given us your word, you've given us one another. Oh, you've given, you give, and you give again, and you've enabled us to taste and see that you are good. Oh, we're desperately, desperately longing for you to open the eyes of those we know and love who don't yet know you. Please do that, Father. Help us to be faithful to them and keep reaching out, not copying them, not condemning them, but reaching out to them. And for one another, oh, Father, help us to love dearly from the heart. And would you send your son soon that we may rejoice forevermore. Amen.